gentlemen, we are going to get started uh, as close to 4.30 as we can. Thank you so much for coming out. I see a few new faces here. Um, man, this is an old habit, you and I doing this now, huh? Right. So Brendan, Brendan Weckert here will be giving a presentation in the Institute of World Politics, which is where you are. We're a fully accredited graduate school of statecraft and international affairs. If anyone has any questions about the program here, I'd happily point them in the right direction to get their questions answered. And without further ado, let's jump right into the uh, brief outline of Brandon, um, who's an alumnus here at the Institute, and the topic for today's lecture. So the topic today is entitled, How War with Iran Benefits Russia. Very nice and to the point. And Brandon, a uh, bit of background about Brandon, aside from his experience studying here at the Institute of World Politics. He is a former congressional staffer and founder of a very interesting report, which I'd suggest each and every one of you to visit. It's called the Weikert Report. It uh, focuses, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but on a more unconventional interpretation uh, and more accurate interpretation of many global affairs currently happening. His book on national security space policy will be uh, released shortly, and that is the area in which Brandon has consistently demonstrated his expertise um, as a speaker here and on other occasions and through other mediums. He holds a bachelor's from DePaul University, as associate member of the New College at Oxford. Recently, he obtained his master's in statecraft and national security with a specialization in defense policy from the ISU which I mentioned previously. And on top of being a contributor to uh, several um, publications, including American Greatness, he does, Brandon does routine speaking engagements, um, for which IWP is just one of several of the venues. He has also conducted numerous media interviews and has been featured on the BBC World News, World Update, and has been interviewed by the Christian Science Monitor. Um, and uh, I think without further ado, let's just jump into Brandon and all the, uh, the insight he has to offer today. Thank you so much for coming out. Let's give him a warm round of applause. Thank you, Kevin. Um, yeah, I also uh, would like to mention that um, I was two weeks ago made a fellow at the Eurasian Research and Analysis Institute. Um, and so um, very happy to be part of that group and we do a lot of work about regarding what we're going to be talking about today. So let's just jump into it. Um, how war with Iran strengthens Russia. So in 2015, the former Obama administration uh, attempted to create a, a new deal for the Middle East. The Iraq War of 2003 had essentially gutted the American-led world order in the Middle East and they, the Obama administration was trying to figure out a way to effectively allow for America to draw down in the region while, without handing off the region to jihadist radicals that we were fighting. Uh, so the nuclear executive nuclear agreement was something that they crafted. Now, personally, it was Trisha Parsi has written a couple books on this, and he is a very articulate defender of the the deal. I think he actually does gives it far more credence than it deserves. I think the idea was an interesting one, but its execution left much to be desired. Um, that was partly the fault of the President Obama, but that was also the political system in the United States, as well as the intransigence of the Iranian government. And so um, 
rather than being the coup de grace that the Obama administration hoped it would be, the diplomatic agreement over Iran's nuclear uh, weapons program actually ended up weakening American, traditional American allies like the Sunni Arab states, as well as Israel. It actually sent Turkey running into the arms of both China and Russia, and it actually was the diplomatic equivalent of the Iraq War of 2003, in which it fundamentally undermined America's already weakening position in the region. For Iran's perspective, the nuke deal paved the way for return to international markets and allowed uh, Iran to ramp up oil production and exports. Uh, all told, Iranian oil exports had dropped from 2.4 million barrels per day to, in 2011 to just 1 million barrels per day by 2013, and Iran has since restored much of that last output. In fact, they're starting to increase the output. Um, the money generated from trade uh, with Iran has actually gone into, or trade normalization, has actually gone into funding Iranian military and uh, it has supported the Iranian government, which thereby is actually destabilizing the region as Iran seeks to increase its hegemony over the Middle East by using the Shiite diaspora known as the Shia Crescent, which stretches from uh, Iran, parts of Afghanistan, through Iraq and the Levant, and you're seeing this play out right now in the Syrian civil war in Iran's fight against uh, ISIS, as well as their fight to essentially push the United States and its allies out of the region or to subordinate many of our allies to Iranian hegemony. Um, if the Trump administration tears the nuclear agreement up, and you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because if the Trump administration tears the deal up, now they've already decertified, but the deal has not actually been completely destroyed because Congress has to have a say and our allies have to have a say as well, which is going to be problematic. But if the deal is torn up, um, the global oil prices will spike as uh, the potential for supply outages from Iran increase, not to mention the volatility increasing because of uh, Iranian military moves to potentially, depending on the severity of the crisis, to potentially uh, mine the Strait of Hormuz, which is one of the seven global oil choke points, which would then cause prices to skyrocket even more. Um, it would therefore give Russia, which right now is kind of puttering along economically because the global price of oil since 2014 has remained relatively low compared to historical norm. Um, so if we were to increase tensions, if, God forbid, a war with Iran were to break out, you would see the Iranian oil supplies going offline, volatility in the energy market increase, a spike in the global price of energy, which would disproportionately benefit Russia, which is essentially a petro-economy, and that would then translate into Russian military modernization, which is inimical to our interest. Right now, Russia is not the threat we think it is because their economy is tethered to the petro uh, economy, which means that as long as those prices remain low, they're, they're not really going to be the threat that they wish themselves to be. However, if we push too far in Iran, if we create too much volatility in the energy market, that's a different story entirely. So here's just a little, little visual for you all. There is a correlative volatility. Global price of oil increase causes Russian military power to increase because they are able to rapidly modernize. Now, General, and I, I'm forgetting, I think his name is Gerizimov, he's the head of the Russian, their equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He, last week in Moscow, gave a speech. Some friends managed to get a hold of it and translate it. And basically, he was touting, he was acting as a cheerleader for Russia's military modernization. 
Um, they have managed to modernize. They are st stronger than they've been really since the Cold War. However, I disbelieve that they are as strong as they were when they invaded Georgia. They're having, there's a lot of strategic gaps forming and uh, they're having to rely more heavily on these kind of soft power methods to increase their, um, their hold on, the, re on, on uh, the Middle East as well as trying to increase their hold in Eastern Europe. As far, far as the, uh, the Russian and Iranian axis of resistance, um, this is a, an alliance that is not well understood by the West. Many, a few people in the Washington, D.C. area have accurately pointed out, um, Mohsen Milani is one of them, Russia is hardly interested in Iran's so-called axis of resistance, which stretches from Iran to Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria, and essentially consists of Shia forces. Given its ambition to become a great power in the Middle East, uh, it cannot alienate the Sunni countries, nor is Russia interested in antagonizing Israel. In fact, relations between Israel and Russia are exceptionally friendly these days. Um, the glue to this Russo-Iranian alliance is less constructive as it is simply uh, their common enmity toward the United States and Washington's imperatives in the region. So what I would argue is if we really wanted to uh, prevent Iranian hegemony, if we really wanted to slow Iran's growth down at a diplomatic level, and we wanted to try to pivot Russia back toward the Western side, we should be offering Russia a, a new deal, if you will. Um, uh, and I'm going to get to that later, but there was a Financial Times article a few weeks ago um, by, a, and I can't say his name, I can't pronounce his name, he's, a, he's a, a Polish gentleman. Basically, he was arguing in favor of creating a northern belt of countries, the EU countries, America, Canada, Russia, to try to get the Russian elite to buy into a more proactive, positive, Western-friendly uh, alliance. And I'll get into that later, but, but we need to be doing something that will actually be constructive and will force the Russians away from this contradictory approach to uh, uh, relations with the West. And this is just a little video of Trump decertifying the deal last month. Um, we cannot and will not make this certification. We will not continue down a path whose predictable conclusion is more violence, more terror, and the very real threat of America's nuclear and that's the key thing, is the nuclear issue. So what the, the Obama administration missed, and what I think the, the current administration understands fundamentally, is that the, the Iranian nuclear uh, program is a direct threat both to our allies like Israel, as, as well as the Sunni Arab states, but also to, more generally, the United States. And we're seeing, however loose, a coordination in nuclear development between North Korea and Iran. These two issues are fused. And so the current administration understands that Iran cannot be allowed to get nukes. At the same time, though, we are tethered because of this agreement and many of our allies and even some of our rivals like Russia and China, our competitors like Russia and China no longer want to see sanctions reimposed. So in that clip, the president decertified the deal, but that does not end the deal. It's now up to Congress. He has punted to Congress, um, and Congress from that point, I believe, has 60 days, so they have about 40 plus days left on whether or not they're going to recertify or rather impose uh, sanctions. Uh, the Trump administration has issued a series of um, pointers for things that, that the, 
the Congress could do to reimpose sanctions. The first point that Congress can do is to do nothing and let the deal stand. Now, this would appease our allies. This would certainly make the Iranians happy. But at the end of the day, this is a Republican-controlled Congress. We're going into a contentious midterm election. We've already seen what happens to candidates on the Republican side who are not necessarily in lockstep with the Trump administration's goals. They tend to lose, as evidenced by Virginia, the gubernatorial race. And so the Republicans are going to want to maintain their grip on power. So the point one is unlikely to happen. The second point is and potentially reimpose sanctions and ignore the parameters of the deal. Um, this is not going to happen. So we don't like the deal. The Iranians actually don't like the deal either. But both sides are committed to it because of the perception issue. Um, the, neither side wants to be seen as breaking the deal first. And so this is unlikely to happen. So this leads to the third point. Senator Tom Cotton, who I, I know a little bit, I worked on the Hill, I actually, when he was on the House, I worked a lot with his staff intensely on several issues. Um, he, I think, is the one on the Senate side that's pushing the third point, which is to change the laws that undergird the sanctions to trigger, um, to, to basically trigger sanctions if certain lines are crossed. Uh, this, to me, is probably the best way forward because, obviously, we can't let the deal stand because it is probable at that point Iran will get nuclear weapons and then the entire situation gets worse for the United States. But we can't keep doing what we're doing now, which is to keep injecting uncertainty. So I think that if we actually change the laws and basically create a diplomatic tripwire that the Iranians would inevitably cross, that would actually work in our favor. And the reason I say that we can't keep doing what we're doing is because although the administration recertified the deal twice, um, from the executive branch side, they always the, the administration always made the comment that um, the Iran was living up to the letter of the deal, but not the spirit of the deal. And people kind of chuckled at that. But this is a really important point because it's true. The IAEA, the UN, the EU, Russia, China, even some of our intel services have confirmed that, generally speaking, Iran was upholding the deal. The problem was they were still doubling down on their development of dual-use technology. They were still funding terrorism. They were still doing the things that were rapidly destabilizing the region. And when the Obama administration entered into this agreement, the assumption was that it would mollify Iran to a point. It has not. In fact, it has had the opposite intended effect, uh, which is why the Trump administration is trying, I think, to figure out a way to move forward. Um, Nick Cunningham, who writes for, he's an oil, he's an energy analyst, he said last year, if the president does follow through on killing the accord, the fallout could be significant. It is unclear how effective it will be to unilaterally reimpose sanctions on Iran, considering the size of the U.S. economy, threatening to close off access to the American market to anyone purchasing Iranian oil could be persuasive. That could potentially cut off some Iranian oil exports once again, which would have the effect of taking global supplies off the market, thus pushing up prices. And I think this is likely going to be the thing that the Trump administration does to entice many of, um, of the other countries to join on board with reimposition of sanctions if Congress decides to do that. Um, Why would the prices go up? Wouldn't the prices go down? No, because when you're, you're increasing, when you, whenever you take supplies offline, because we, we uh, normalize trade relations with Iran and they've now met their uh, production standard, uh, whenever you take those sources offline, you inject volatility into the global market, which then causes prices to spike. 
And so, and Russia's banking on that because they need, they actually need the money, they need prices to get above $80 a barrel right now, it's at $52. They actually need $80 per barrel in order to start generating the kind of profits they need to fund their military modernization. Um, and so, um, the, this is probably the tactic that the Trump administration is going to attempt, which will basically to say, hey, look, if any business or country does further business with Iran, we're going to cut off your access to our markets. Um, obviously, America is a more lucrative market and desirable market than Iran. This will have an enticing effect. Um, how effective it's going to be, though, in the multipolar world is another question, because there's the issue of will Russia go along, will China go along, will the Europeans go along? And so, if it does go according to plan, that will be a highly effective tactic. However, the issue, the greater issue of pushing up oil prices, well, this is going to actually empower Russia and help to further fragment power away from the United States and help to further destabilize the Middle East in its current form because Russia's backing Iran's play. And as Russia backs Iran's play in the region, Iran is trying to make a, uh, a move to, dom as I said earlier, to dominate the region, and therefore it becomes highly complicated for the United States to effectively reimpose these sanctions. Um, th there was a, a Columbia University uh, study that came out right after the election. They were two former Obama State Department staffers, so it was, it was, it was, a, it was a good study. It was skewed, though, uh, but I thought it was still very informative. Basically, they said that this is going to generate an uncoordinated response if we try to reimpose sanctions from our allies as well as the rest of the world, which is going to, you know, seriously undermine America's position. The U.S. and allies in Europe and Asia could simply reject Trump administration's demands. If so, oil flows would be rerouted from countries that comply with Washington's demands and put sanctions back in place to countries that refuse to comply. Those of you who have come to my previous lectures on Germany, uh, France, and Russia's new budding alliance know that it is likely, I believe, Germany and France would be among the uncompliant states. Uh, and that's also because Russia has such a, a heavy influence over Europe with the natural gas that flows into the region. This, uh, it, it is unlikely that you're going to see uh, either Germany or France complying with seriously sanctions being placed on. Um, also, if a large oil producer such as China uh, decides not to comply, which I suspect they won't because they need the energy and they also they don't really have the same concerns about Iran that, that we in the West do, um, the, the destruction of the, if they decide not to, to comply with the destruction of the deal, the U.S. effort to contain Iran will will go nowhere and it will further undermine our position in the in the world. Also, India and Turkey are probably not going to go along with it as well. Again, it, they could, but the incentive system there is is not what it used to be. Also, for Iran's part, they might decide to cooperate with OPEC and boost oil prices now. You're already seeing this happen. Uh, the Russian-Saudi deal uh, last month, I, I made a podcast at my website about this, got a lot of uh, mixed results from people. Uh, I said basically, in and of itself, the Russian-Saudi deal actually makes sense because Russia is more dependent now on the energy markets than we in the U.S. are, uh, and from, from, so they need to coordinate with Saudi Arabia. Um, but Iran is benefiting from this deal as well because it's pushing up prices. And, and as you push up prices, it's making it more painful for the international community to restore sanctions because it would actually double up on further pushing up the prices. And the international community right now obviously needs lower costs of energy. 
Um, on the other hand, Iran might try to overproduce out of fear of seeing output constrained in the future by international sanctions should they be reimposed. So there's a lot of uh, other var variables that are no longer in American control and that are actually working against the United States. Um, again, all about those nukes. The, the, we keep coming back to this because economically maintaining the deal would probably make a bit more sense. It's, it's a terrible deal, but we're looking at a lot of these other variables. But on the military and national security side, we, we simply don't know how Iran will, well, well actually we know Iran will behave even more aggressively if they manage to get a working, reliable nuclear arsenal and they will fundamentally undermine America's position and our alliances in the region, um, which is problematic. And so Trump, he's moving to revitalize U.S. alliances in the Mideast in order to place Iran back in, into its box. Um, so he needs to prevent a nuclear breakout of Iran as well as a military breakout of Iran in the Mideast. Saudi Arabia, Israel, Sunni Arab states like Egypt, these are, um, these are important countries for us there, but they're skeptical of American staying power after the twin failures of the George W. Bush freedom agenda, as well as the Obama retrenchment and rapprochement agenda with Iran. Uh, so by decertifying the deal, it's a gambit that Trump is making. He's hoping that it signals that America has Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the other Sunni Arab powers' backs against Iran. Uh, the upside for this diplomatic gambit, again, the multipolar world, I've said this before, leaves no good options on the table for us. There's, we have to just, you know, do we want to lose big or lose little, basically, is the, is the paradigm now, particularly in the Middle East. Um, the issue in the Middle East is that um, we've actually, by taking out ISIS the way we did, we actually reasserted that, hey, we're not going anywhere, and that's done confidence building with the Sunni Arab states in Israel. Um, the, I think it was back in April or May, the, the big summit that Trump had in the Middle East in which he did the big arms deal with Saudi Arabia, and it was this great diplomatic victory for the Trump administration, at least it appeared so. Um, that, that helped to solidify America's staying power with its wary allies in the region. And also, while I disagreed fundamentally with the decision to stay in Afghanistan, the silver lining in that was that we signaled to the region that, hey, regardless of the cost and regardless of the price involved and whatever you know, a positive effect we could possibly have in Afghanistan at this point, we're not going anywhere. So these things have actually worked diplomatically in America's favor to try to rehabilitate the old alliances. Uh, John Bradley wrote in the Times about two months ago, it was before the decision to decertify was made by the Trump administration, he said, Riyadh is still outraged that the Obama administration had agreed to a nuclear deal with Iran, the Saudis' rival for regional hegemony, and is sulking over the Syria debacle. They have only Russia to turn to in an effort to limit Tehran's influence in Syria. For the same reason, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been holding meetings with Putin. During one, he was almost in tears as he, like the Saudis, begged the Russian leader to reign in Iran and Hezbollah, which seek the Jewish state's destruction. Uh, we often overlook, we, we focus understandably on the humanitarian aspect of the Syrian civil war, but we often overlook the geoeconomic aspect of the Syrian civil war. You see, during the early period of the Syrian civil war, there was a dueling pipeline that was going, that we, we were trying to get going. The United States was backing the Saudi, Qatari, Turkish pipeline to bring Mideast energy sources up through Syria and into Europe. And the Russians were backing an Iran, Iraq, Syria pipeline into Europe. Now, obviously, we've seen 
The Russians want to dominate as much of the global energy market as possible, not just to make money off of it, but also for geopolitical leverage. We saw how they use that. They manipulate it against the Europeans, for instance, when they decided to go into Georgia. They threatened uh, access to natural gas to the Germans and the French and the Ukrainians, which prompted an entente to occur, even when the West did not want to see Russia cleave Georgia apart. A similar activity happened when Russia took yeah, Crimea. Um, and luckily for the, in 2014, when that was going on, the global price of oil dropped, which actually undermined the Russian position. So the Russians had been trying to dominate Mideast oil. Now this was a, the Russian-backed Iranian pipeline was a fanciful idea at the time. It was assumed in Saudi Arabia that the then Obama administration would have intervened to topple Assad and that they would have put a friendlier, uh, a strong man or group in charge of Syria that would have allowed for the building of the Saudi-backed Qatari pipeline into Europe. Ultimately, and I think this was probably a smart move, we did not intervene in Syria militarily, but this had the unintended effect of undermining the, the uh, Saudi position in the region and empowering the Iranian pipeline to the point where Turkey is now essentially a de facto ally of Russia and also China. And so they are, they are buying the Russian-built S-400 air defense system, which actually is undermining NATO's southern defensive perimeter because they're not compatible, those systems aren't compatible with the NATO defensive systems. And as you know, interoperability is a huge component of why we have NATO. And so it's, it's all about Syria as well. And the Russians backing the Iranians in the early in the Syrian civil war is now going to bear out, likely bear out, um, geoeconomic fruits. And now the Saudis are incensed and they're smarting over this loss because the Obama administration didn't back their play. And so now they're trying to buddy up with the Russians as best they can. Not to the extent that Turkey is, but they're, they're starting to. And it makes sense. I can't blame them. I, I understand why they're doing it. It's uh, unfortunate for America. Again, though, I, I don't know what they expected us to do because intervening in Syria would have been a disaster. Um, with Bradley again, he said that in a des desperate last-ditch effort to stop the Putin power grab in its tracks, the uh, Trump administration will almost certainly decertify, which they did, despite the International Atomic Energy Agency, the EU, and UN being adamant that Tehran is abiding by its terms. The aim is to provoke military confrontation with Iran, or at least cr uh, create more regional turmoil to undermine the Kremlin. The reckless and unjustified move will throw a spanner in the works, but in the long term is, like intervention in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and Syria, doomed to failure. Um, I, I worry that this is likely where we're headed. Um, it is American intervention over the last 17 years in this region has made the situation considerably worse for everyone. And so I don't, again, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. Uh, we, we, can't, we cannot let Iran get nukes. This is, this, is a, this is a red line that simply cannot be crossed because we don't know what happens after that. We know Iran will get more aggressive, not less. And so this is the problem, is that we, we need to get rid of this deal and we need to start trying to build up our allies, but the, invari the, the variable is um, the history of our, of our intervention in the region, coupled with the fact that any action against Iran will invariably cause the spike in, in global prices of, of energy to go up, which will actually empower Russia. Right now, Russia is puttering along. Right now, Russia is somewhat more compliant than they usually are because they know they're puttering along and they can't rely right now on the price of energy to keep their economy going and to shore up Putin's regime. If we go do something against Iran, anywhere from reimposition of sanctions to actual, God forbid, war, that changes the metric entirely. 
were no longer viewed as the dominant strong horse in the region. Lee Smith, I think he's still at the American Enterprise Institute, don't hold me to that, but this book came out in 2011, The Strong Horse, Power, Politics, and the Clash of Arab Civilizations. He basically, he glommed onto something that Bin Laden said when Bin Laden issued his fatwa against us in the 90s. Bin Laden said that we were the weak horse and Al-Qaeda was the strong horse. Everybody kind of laughed it off. Um, but now, after 17 years of ineffective warfare, the United States and also the global recession and our, uh, you know, the, the anemic recovery, we are now, at least it's being questioned whether we're the strong horse in the region. In fact, and I'm going off something that former Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters has written about extensively in his own work, what we're seeing is that America, whether it's by our traditional, you know, the strongmen, secular autocrats in the region, or if it's by the jihadists themselves, America is no longer viewed as a stabilizing force. We're actually being viewed by many as a revolutionary force engaged in, uh, you know, trying to you know, bring issues like women's rights and, and, and democratic globalism into a region that wants nothing to do with that, into a very traditional conservative region. Uh, and in fact, the jihadists are taking up the counter-revolutionary mantle. And um, this, is, this, is, this is really complicating our attempts to uh, ensure our interests in the region. Because when we toppled Saddam, it signaled to, and when we after, went after Gaddafi in Libya, and potentially after you know other people in the region, it actually many of our allies who are secular strongmen started saying, um, "Are we going to be next? And how reliable are you as an ally? And oh, you can't even take out when you take out Saddam, you can't even stabilize the situation thereafter." So there, there, there's a big question mark as to the staying power of the United States. However wrong it may be, there is a big the perception is that America is not only an incompetent power, but that we actually are destabilizing the region actively. Uh, Russia, on the other hand, has come in over the last seven, eight years and is being perceived as a more reliable, less volatile, less hostile, and more traditional power only interested in regional stability. And they also have the image, and it's not exactly accurate, but this is the image, of standing up to the radical jihadist element. Um, and so, as we all know, living in D.C., uh, politics is perception and perception is power. And so the Russians are, have the almighty perception advantage over us right now. The old order that dominated, the American-led order that dominated in the region from 1945 until 2003, I would argue actually until 1991, uh, but just say 2003, is gone and it is unlikely to return. Um, for its part, if you look at the Credit Suisse does an analysis of the, 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 the poll strength, because the, they, they believe, like I do, that unfortunately we're living in a multipolar world, and so they map the different poll strengths of the different powers. America, a scale of one to five, one being the weakest, five being the strongest, America's obviously a five. Um, Russia is a two, and it seems to be going in the wrong direction for Russia. So Russia is overall declining power, and obviously, uh, this has its own set of problems that it presents the world in terms of if the Russians and David Goldman, who's uh, he is a contributor to Asia Times Online, and he is a he's a friend of mine. He's written a book a few years ago called How Civilizations Die, and uh, he's kind of a, a new kind of Oswald Spangler, very pessimistic outlook. And he says that uh, a country he was talking about Iran with their fertility rates, but I think it applies to Russia as well. A country that has a limited stake in its future, is unlikely to act reasonably or, um, or will act uh, aggressively in the near term to try to make 
a better future. So these, these metrics are actually working against the, uh, the, the United States in terms of trying to restabilize the world order. Um, for Russia, though, they are far too dependent on the volatile price of oil. Uh, oil has been at historic lows. It is starting to creep up, and I think it'll get to $60 a barrel, which is exactly where the Saudis want it. But it really is not going to get close to 80 I think, unless some kind of destabilizing act vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. position toward Iran occurs. Unless that occurs, the Russians are going to be uh, you know, only dreaming about taking eastern Ukraine. Um, and we... We want, I would argue that we want Russia, because it is a declining power. I, I look at Russia as the British and French looked at the Ottoman Empire of old, as the sick man. So in this case, the sick man of Eurasia. And I actually think the British and French for dealing with the Ottoman Empire had the right solution, which is you don't want to see them get too strong, but you don't want to see them get so weak that they collapse. Because we saw what happened after, in the Middle East after the First World War. The Ottoman Empire went away, and it's, we've been paying the price for it ever since. And so what we need to do is figure out a way to create a more stable Russia that is not trying to invade its neighbors. Uh, as long as Russia is reliant on the uh, volatile price of oil to fuel their, if you'll pardon the expression, to fuel their military and political system, uh, you're going to have aggressive actions in the near term against Russia's neighbors. However, if we can keep that price of oil relatively low, it will force... Uh, structural reforms to Russia's system. And we're already seeing this happening to a modest degree in Russia today. If they can get structural reforms, they might become a more stable actor, and you might actually have a healthy Russia, which is not necessarily a bad thing, given the fact that an unhealthy Russia with all those nukes is something that keeps me up at night. What are they going to do? A healthy Russia that has an actual stake in its future, that is something that I think we can all get along with. And, and you know, there are shared interests between the United States and Russia. And if you look even at, at the fact that they're so dependent on the uh, volatile price of, of energy, uh, Russia, it's actually $49.3 billion is their defense budget for this year. That is a paltry number. And this was, by the way, according to Jane's defense, this number, $49.3 billion, was after a deep 7% cut this year for their military. Now, why did they have to do that? Well, because Russian debt they had to do. They had to service debt, and so a lot of my buddies in the analytical community who are skeptical about Russia say, "Yeah, but that just means they're going to be better positioned in the future." Well, sure, that's yeah. When you service debt, that's likely going to happen. But also in the near term, it means that Russia is not as strong as it should be or could be, and that that's a good thing for us right now because we know that Russia has hopes of becoming the great you know antithesis to the United States right now. Um, but as long as they're reliant on a very low price of energy to fuel them, they're never going to be able to fulfill these dreams. And this is just a little graph I thought was interesting. Um, and it's kind of mapping the pole strength, who could lead in a multipolar world. We're responsible for 34% of the military spending, yet Russia is the second largest producer of fossil fuels. That's a key thing. Um, and this is the diplomatic dance that's going on right now. Russia is, along with China, the, the, core, the core of this loose alliance that they're forming, this Eurasian alliance that they're, Europe and Asia, that they're forming, it's China, Russia, Turkey, Iran. This is, by the way, a very easily breakable alliance. It just requires proper statesmanship from the United States and its allies. Um, this is not 
like a NATO. This is not like an Anglo-American alliance. This is not a natural fit. And you're seeing the Germans and the French at times coordinating with this bloc. And recently you're seeing Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt to smaller degrees um, coordinating with this bloc. That's out of necessity, not because they want to. It's out of necessity. And by the way, if you think Russia wants to really deal with China, they have no choice but to deal with China because of the way East-West relations have been going over the last six, seven years. Um, and, and this is now going to pivot into something. We're seeing Russia become increasingly dependent on the petro economy. And yet, yet, the petro economy, we're reaching the end of oil. Whether you're I was just in Silicon Valley giving, um, briefing some people in, in the tech sector um, talking about the end of oil. Um, this is a, a real thing. We, we have reached peak oil. We've reached peak coal. We are seeing the, the natural kind of decline of supply. And this is why, in fact, Saudi Arabia just did this deal with Russia. Now, Russia is becoming increasingly dependent on these non-renewable fossil fuels at a time when the world's leading oil producer, Saudi Arabia, is actually trying desperately to diversify its economy away from just relying on non-renewable fossil fuels. And so Saudi Aramco is about to do an initial public offering next year in which they're going to allow that parts of that company, that state-owned enterprise, to be purchased by foreigners, and that money is going to be used to channel into this new mega city that the Saudis are building. It's a $500 billion project, and it's basically going to be the model city for the 21st century. They're going to have every kind of disruptive technology, every kind of innovator. They're going to try to win these people to come over here to basically lead the new age economy. Uh, whether or not it works is another thing entirely, but, but the current leadership in Saudi Arabia is, is very much uh, committed to this because they too believe that we're coming to the end of oil. And, and here's a brief interview uh, with a man that is a leading expert on energy and uh, IPOs. It was uh, in October that this was done. In 40 some years of being in the markets, I've never met anybody in the IPO business that is a humanitarian. They want to bring their, uh, their IPOs at the most advantageous price to the seller at the least advantageous price to the buyer. And I suspect that we're going to see the same thing from the Saudis. When they bring the IPO, and it finally shall come later next year, not, not a question, I, there, I shouldn't say there's not a question, that there is some doubt, but the probabilities are that it will be in the latter half of the year. It's going to be very difficult, I think, at that point to push WTI past 55. I've said that for months and months. I'll hold to that. It'll be very difficult to push rent past $60 a barrel. At those prices, hedges come in. At those prices, profitability is extraordinary in the Bakken and, and in the uh, Eagle Ford here in the United States. So I guess uh, the IPO, when it comes, it is a long way away. It's the next half of next year. But I think that we shall mark a, a very important high for the crude oil market for many years into the future. For many years into the, into the future. So yeah, I think so. I have a, a sneaky suspicion that it shall be. Well, yeah, I, I could be wrong. I've been wrong many times in the past. I shall be wrong again in the future. But again, they're going to try to market that at the highest price they possibly can. It's always to the advantage of the seller. And I suspect it's going to be from strongest to weaker hands when it occurs. Dennis, it's Karen. Let me, I agree with you, but let me just push back for argument's sake. They're only selling a small portion of it. So aren't they maybe actually better off selling it at a little cheaper price and having it trade much better so that they can continue to That's sell it. more shares in the future. That, that is the one argument. They're only going to be selling 5 to 10%. I understand that. And perhaps they'd like to keep uh, some ammunition on the sidelines. But at the same time, 
They're going to try to get the highest price they possibly can. Your point is a very, very valid one. Uh, so, Dennis, is it safe? I mean, would you invest in any of the oil equities from now through the end of next year? I mean, we know that oil prices will be supported. Couldn't that be a decent trade? Well, I think there's a, a better chance of uh, I, I suspect that the spread for the refiners is going to remain very solid. So if you're going to make me do something, I'd rather own a refiner than a producer, I think, for the next year or two. That's probably, if you have to have something in the oil business, if you want to own oil in some manner, own refiners, I think that's a better trade. And, um, and so we see people like, and again, I, I do a lot of work in, in, with the tech industry through my work with space policy. Um, but so we see people, I know he's a controversial figure, um, I still like him, uh, Elon Musk. We see him, he's banking hard on the inevitable end of oil. Now whether his timing is right is another question, but we're seeing these folks who are in the industry, energy industry, uh, whether it be ExxonMobil investing in all these newfangled technologies to go deeper and to do these you know, more in intensive operations with oil, it's because the usual um, the, the, the usual places where you can get easy access energy to sell, they're, they're running up dry. And we're seeing this throughout the world. And so I think this is why Saudi Arabia, I think they're very smart. They recognize that if they don't diversify their con economy and make a play to diversify, they're going to be caught with a bad hand in another 10, 20 years. And so Russia, though, apparently hasn't gotten the memo. Um, they are becoming heavily dependent on the petro economy, on you know, fossil, non-renewable fossil fuels to energize their economy and their military growth. But this is a pattern we see throughout Russian history. So the Russians, when they were conquered by the, you know, the Mongolians and they, they were subjected, subjugated for, for a couple centuries, they, they, the rest of Europe moved beyond serfdom, but the Russians continued with it. And ultimately, the communist revolution happened, to, and the communists were trying to push them into heavy industry, the workers, you know, revolution. And at a, they, the, 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 the Soviets really became proficient with heavy industry in the 60s and 70s, but that was the period in which the United States and the West was starting to develop silicon-based technology. We were starting to develop computers, and we were automation, and so you saw the kind of early, early formulations of what we now know as the new post-industrial economy, and yet Russia was, the Soviets were still kind of a generation behind us, and this is why we saw the brutality throughout history of the czars, because they were constantly trying to force their people to modernize. That was always the catchword, and the, you know, the Soviets, for their part, were always trying through collective methods to force their people to modernize, and now here we have another industry that is going the way of the dodo, that is going the way of saltpeter, uh, and um, uh, the Russians are just now coming to capitalize on it. They're the world's leading natural gas producer. They are, they are a leading oil producer. Um, but the world is start, slowly starting to move on. And in my lifetime, I believe we will be moved beyond, moving beyond that. Um, as I noted, most the reason we're seeing these energy companies develop, and it's really cool the tech that they're developing for drilling, um, to go up into the Arctic, to go to these harder to reach places. The reason I think, and I'm inferring, and I know many people in Texas who would go, you don't know what you're talking about, it's insane. Um, that's because they're, they all benefit from the continuation of this industry as it is. Um, but even Rex Tillerson, the former head of Exxon, and who is now the Secretary of State, during his Senate confirmation hearings, he conceded 
that his suspicion that we were reaching a point where it was getting more difficult to get these natural resources. And the reason is because it is a non-renewable fossil fuel, it's a non-renewable source of energy. And so inevitably you're going to reach a point where there's just not enough left for it to be a profitable endeavor. Uh, Goldman Sachs in 2015, there's a great report, you can find it online. Um, I actually might have the link, I, I can't see the notes, but I think I do have the link to it in, in one of my, my slides. Um, Goldman Sachs predicted that in 2015 was the year of peak coal. And um, it was absolutely, personally, I thought, disgusting what uh, the Democratic nominee said in 2016 during the campaign, when she said about coal miners and, and you know all you know, the deplorables and all that stuff, and it was politically very tactless. Um, but, but the fact remains, unfortunately, for coal country, we've we've reached, I think, and you're already seeing this with China. China basically fueled its rise in large part on coal. But the reason in the last few years China's been more willing to talk about global warming treaties to talk about figuring out ways to offset its dependence on coal and fossil fuels, I think is because the Chinese are not dumb. They recognize at some point this source of energy is going to run out and it's time to pivot and become uh, a, a new, you know, depend on a new uh, source of energy. Also natural gas, Russia is the leading uh, producer of it, but America is the second leader in it. And we still have a lot more developing to do in this realm. Uh, the production went down a bit over the last four or five years, but I argue, while, while I do think this is a non-renewable supply, you know, supply, I do we do have a lot more than we realize, and I argue the reason the production went down was because U.S. government, uh, during the Obama administration, U.S. government increased regulatory burdens on companies and made it not profitable to mine and produce these these sources of energy. Now the Trump administration has busted through the regulatory state and you're seeing this becoming a more profitable enterprise and you're seeing new production coming online which is actually helping us and also it's complicating the Russian position. We'll never be able to top Russia's development but we can potentially keep again the global price relatively low which harms the Russian overall strategic position. I'm also going to briefly talk about Russia's, what they're doing in the Arctic, because it does relate to what they're doing in the Middle East. I know it seems counterintuitive, but the North and South, in this case, are linked. Um, Michael T. Clare, who wrote a great book called The Race for What's Left, I recommend everybody get it. It came out, I think, in 2013. Uh, it was a fantastic book. He said, the area above the Arctic Circle possesses roughly one-fifth of the world's undiscovered oil and natural gas reserves. The largest share of this cornucopia was said to consist of natural gas, roughly 1,689 trillion cubic feet of it, representing an estimated 30% of the world's total undiscovered supply. In addition, the Arctic was said to hold 90 billion barrels of oil, that's 13% of the world's undiscovered supply, plus 44 billion barrels of natural gas liquids. Um, here's a little graph here, you can see uh, potential Arctic oil and gas resources. Russia leads the way, they have the most claims. America's right is second place at 20%. Um, you have another, another graph here, Russia leading the way with gas, they have a little bit of oil, the United States is behind them significantly, but enough to complicate them, especially if you add in America's, uh, uh, in, our indigenous sources here. Um, here's just another graphic from Business Insider, you see that the Russians have the dominant position in every one of these, uh, there's the, the uh, natural gas resources. Uh, and also, 84% of the hydrocarbon resources lie offshore, and Russia has the bulk of the claims. Uh, they're calling it the cold rush, 
And uh, in 2008, former President Dmitry Medvedev, to show you how important energy is to Russian national security and foreign policy, he said at the time, our first and main task is to turn the Arctic into Russia's resource base in the 21st century. Following that edict, the Russian National Security Council crafted a strategic guidance plan to make the Arctic the main source of Russian energy by 2020. Also, um, this, this was all in response to the fact that Samotlor, Yurengoy, and Yamburg, the gas fields in Russia, the, the, the most notorious gas fields in Siberia, were coming up empty at that point in time in 2008. And they've been virtually depleted now, and it's forcing the Russians to look elsewhere because when those fields went down, the Russians lost a considerable share of economic power. And so now they're getting more aggressive in the Arctic and they're looking to the Middle East to try to dominate those energy sources because it's basically Putin is clinging on for dear life. But what he doesn't realize is, uh, there, I think there's a quote by uh, um, Elon Musk that basically likens the non-renewable fossil fuel sector to being these companies are in, an, in a room in which the oxygen is slowly depleting. And so they're desperately trying to hang on, they're desperately trying to keep breathing, but this is a, it's a, it's, it's a, a commodity that is not renewable and therefore is ultimately going to run out. Um, these are the main difficulties that Russia's facing in their Arctic mining, and this has had significant complications for the Russian plan to dominate the energy sector in the Arctic uh, by 2020. I think they're generally going to be a dominant just because they have the most claims, but they cannot, with current technology, they cannot develop anywhere near what they need to develop up there. So this is one of those kind of mindless hopes that the, the Russians have to cling on to some semblance of power. Um, the technology is getting better, but it's mostly Western companies that are the source of this technological innovation. And as we've seen, with or without sanctions imposed on Russia, <laughs> The, the Russian business sector is um, notoriously corrupt and ineffective and inefficient, and as British Petroleum proved in 2011, they tried to seriously develop with the Russians uh, parts of these Arctic reserves, and the Russians ended up screwing them over, if you'll pardon the expression. Uh, ExxonMobil in 2013 under Rex Tillerson stepped in in a limited capacity, had some impact, positive impact, but the, um, the geography of the Arctic, the, the, the weather, all of these things are working against, and the cost of actually developing the drills necessary to get in there and actually safely drill, all of these things are working against the Russians, which is why they're becoming more insistent upon focusing on the Middle East and trying to dominate those shares uh, of energy. Uh, here's the quote I was looking for. Uh, Elon Musk likened, uh, he said that there are time extensions on the game of ending dependence on non-renewable fossil fuels, but the game is going to come to an end. That should be absolutely certain, obviously, Frankly, if you're in non-renewables, you're stuck in a room where the oxygen is gradually depleting and then outside it's not. You want to get out of that room, the ones that get out of the room sooner will be better off. Even ExxonMobil is starting to look at other technologies. They're starting to look at other ways. Uh, this, again, the Saudis are really serious about, they're leading the way in terms of state-owned enterprises and trying to figure out a way to diversify their petro economy. And for their part, Saudi Arabia, uh, wants the global price of oil around $60 a barrel because they calculate that is when they can get maximized profitability for when they take Saudi Aramco public next year. Um, the kingdom's uh, recent spate, the recent recent deals with Russia help this endeavor because it allows coordination and obviously Russia benefits from an increase in the price as well because that's how they're fueling their military rise. Um, Saudi Arabia and Russia success successfully uh, collaborating um, 
on manipulating fundamentals and lifting prices, if it continues, will likely have large ramifications on the global market in the future, according to Nick Cunningham. Well, obviously, yes, that's true. And further, again, aggressive action against Iran by the West will only spike those, those prices higher. If it gets to $80 or above, that's the sweet spot. If it's 80 or above, Russia's gonna be unleashed. And that's when we're gonna have real problems. Um, on Monday of this week, Wells Fargo released their recent assessment of Russian real GDP growth. Um, they found that there's been a downshift in growth. A preliminary data released today showed that real GDP, that today is in Monday of this week, November 13th, uh, th that real GDP in Russia grew 1.8% on a year-ago basis in Q3 of, Q3 of 2017. The outturn uh, represents a slowdown from the 2.5% rate registered during the previous quarter and came up a bit short of the 2% rate that the market consensus had anticipated, according to John Bryson, who's a chief global economist at Wells Fargo. So again, short. this is creating short-termism. They need those bursts of, 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 of wealth from higher prices of, of uh, global energy. Um, this is from, uh, I took this from a report in 2016 that Moscow, uh, the, the Central Bank of, of Russia was, uh, the, they interviewed the head of the Central Bank of Russia and she was saying these things in mid-2016. The rise in oil prices obviously strengthens Russia's national currency against which the Central Bank of Russia is consistently taking measures. It mitigates Russia's budget deficit, which has already hindered, as I noted, Russia's military spending in 2017, earlier this year. And also, according to the chairperson of the Central Bank, quote, even with a price of $100 a barrel of crude, Russia's GDP would not be able to grow by more than 1.5 to 2% unless structural reforms are implemented. Such reforms would be undercut by the growth in oil prices since it disincentivizes Russia from weaning itself off reliance on petroeconomics. What we've seen is with the relative low price of oil, Putin has had no choice but to implement some, some measures of structural reforms. Any little bit is helpful, again, if we're concerned about stability, global stability. Um, and this is the gentleman I was referencing, the Financial Times article, Vladislav Inosmetsev. Um, he said that today Russia is weak, but if it were properly engaged, this would change the configuration of what the late Zbigniew Brzezinski, the American geostrategist, used to call the grand chessboard. Imagine incorporating Russia into a free trade zone and a military alliance, offering its citizens the chance to become equal to the Westerners and its elite the opportunity to be considered a part of the northern political and business community. This would be a way for the West, finally, to make peace with a long-standing adversary and to secure a new enduring geopolitical architecture for the 21st century. This is where we need to go. This is the solution out of this kind of hostile path we're taking with Russia in, in Europe and in the Middle East. For its part, right now, because they're so tethered to the volatile price of petroeconomics, I've created the Russia's cycle of decline. For Putin's regime to continue on, he needs the petroeconomy to be uh, expensive. He needs a high price of oil and, ener and overall energy for geopolitical strength in the near term. And yet, for long-term survival, uh, Russia needs structural reforms. But without the uh, petroeconomy, there's no geopolitical strength. And without structural reform, there's no hope of survival. Remember, Goldman, David Goldman's uh, postulation that a country that has increasing little left in its future will get more aggressive in its present. And so this has created uh, an inexorable decline, which is leading to global instability because Russia is basically trying to do this big gambit in, in the near term. 
Um, there are unacceptable risks to um, conflicting with Iran, which is that it strengthens Russia's economy and military, which could, because of what they're going to do in Eastern Europe, potentially it could lead to some kind of world war. There are also terrible consequences if we don't reimpose sanctions. Uh, no decertification, no reimposition of sanction. America loses traditional Middle Eastern alliances. Uh, that then will lead to Iran nuclear breakout and regional hegemony, or at least a serious bid by Iran to do so, which will then in turn create a situation where the non-Shiite Middle Eastern powers increase hostilities with Iran, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia gets a nuclear bomb. In 2011 or 12, it's a little reported, uh, the Kingdom did make a down payment on a handful of nuclear weapons from Pakistan. The U.S. State Department and the CIA intervened and basically got the Saudis to stand down, but Pakistan is essentially holding these weapons in reserve. It is believed that once the Saudis disbelieve they can rely on the United States to protect their standing in the Middle East, they will take possession of these bombs. And let me tell you something, nuclear proliferation to Saudi Arabia is as frightening, in my view, as proliferation to uh, Iran. And so this will, this will likely put the region at loggerheads, and you could potentially be looking at a situation where Russia and America are drawn in, and uh, Russia could come to dominate the Middle East. Best case scenario, worst case is there's some kind of a conflict. This is a bad deal indeed. Um, we can't forget Sir Halford Mackinder, who said in 1904 he warned the British Empire and all seafaring powers like the United States about the dangers of a rise in um, an alliance or a country that came to dominate Eurasia, what he referred to as the World Island. Eurasia has always been the base of resources, has always had a larger population than the United States, so there's... There's a, there, if, if one or a coalition of powers come to dominate this, it will likely be inimical, in, indigenous powers, it will likely be inimical to American interests given their uh, cultures and their, 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 their current policies toward the world, which tend to be authoritarian and um, anti-American. He said that who rules East Europe commands the heartland, who rules the heartland commands the world island, who rules the world island commands the world and Russia has been making moves. Now, it's been met with nominal success because, again, they, they haven't been that attractive. Um, the, they are developing the Eurasian Economic Union as a counterweight to the EU. They're developing with China the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as a counterweight to NATO. These have had mixed results. But if you allow for Russian dominance of the Middle East, if you allow for you know, Turkey to pivot to China and Russia, if you, if you allow basically what's going on now to, to continue on without American statesmanship rising to offer a better deal to the Russians, again, these new alliances are not natural. They are not something the Russians inherently want to do. It's something they're being forced to do because the West is increasingly closed off to them. So if we do what, well, what I was talking about earlier with creating the Northern Belt Alliance, we might be able to offset some of these negative trends. Um, because right now, Russia wants the Euro Eurasian Economic Union, and he wants to, they want to marry it up to China's One Belt, One Road initiative, which is China's attempt to rehabilitate the old Silk Road routes and basically have conduct trade among Europe and Asia on a mostly land-based uh, 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 
method, which will in turn weaken America's ability to potentially threaten China in the event of a uh, conflict or disagreement because China right now is heavily dependent on maritime trade, but they're trying to offset that by relying on the new Silk Road. They're still going to have maritime trade, but this is a complicating factor. Um, okay. Okay. Um, so, and we're coming to the end here. I know this is a little long, but I'm getting thrown a lot at you. The Northern Belt, this is, this is what I was talking about earlier with Vladislav Inosmitsev wants to do, uh, the Financial Times writer. He said, during the 20th century, Russia considered itself an adversary to America. Moscow really wants to be counted as an equal to the U.S. rather than the West. But if one switches from thinking in terms of a West that is Russia, that, that, that rather a West that Russia would never be allowed to join, to talking about the North, the issues take an entirely different complexion. Looked at through this lens, the U.S. and Russia, two continental powers built through settler colonization by Europeans, represent the two younger wings of a European civilization whose historical mission is to close the northern belt and to make the Pacific Ocean as central to Europe's self-image as the Atlantic has been for centuries. Um, U.S., Canada, the EU, and Russia control 26% of global natural gas and 20% of oil reserves. We possess exclusive rights for Arctic offshore fields, control 96% of the world's nuclear arsenals while accounting for 61% of global military spending, generate 48% of global GDP, and two-thirds of registered, registered patents. Combined population exceeds 1 billion. Territory encompasses 27% of the Earth's landmass. A new project to appeal to the Russian elite who worry about the current rift with the West and fears that growing economic and demographic pressure from the South and the East of Russia, this is where we should be headed. And there is a lot in common with, with Russia on this matter. I know we have our problems, but the Russians, you know, we're better united than divided. This is not the Cold War. And if we can get, um, get the Russians on board with this Northern Belt Initiative, which I think is a really great idea, um, we will be able to outpace China significantly and bring stability and uh, potentially uh, build a, a better world. I don't want to sound like a utopian here, but I think we really could based on shared interests. Uh, that's important because we have a lot of them. And so the solution right now to the Iran issue, again, going back to going right back to the kind of narrow focus of Iran, we can't allow Iran to get nukes. That is an inherently destabilizing factor, and America will lose whatever leverage it has in the region. So we're going to need to, we have already decertified, we're going to need to figure out a way to reimpose sanctions by bringing the Russians along, and that's why I talk about the Northern Belt Initiative. This is a real thing that we can do. Um, in the meantime, the U.S. needs to invest and expand on its domestic energy production temporarily to keep the global price of energy low, and at the same time, we need a Manhattan-like project to get nuclear fusion. Everybody talks about wind and solar, and that's whatever. The real solution is nuclear fusion, and it's possible. I know it's possible. I have talked to people who are working in the industry. It's just a question of funding and leadership. Um, also, the last part is, as I said, negotiate with Russia. That we have more in common. Look, if you look generally at the West and include Russia in that, demographically we're all in decline. Economically we're stagnant compared to the East. This is a way to get a united front going to prop up growth and to maybe reinvigorate uh, the culture and the civilization to be more competitive and to create a better balance going forward, a more reliable balance of power. Um, 
Uh, lastly, if we wait, if we delay change in terms of getting off of non-renewables, uh, the best case is simply delaying the inevitable transition to sustainable energy. This is the best case if we don't take action now. The only thing we gain by uh, slowing down the transition is just slowing it down. The worst case, however, is more displacement and destruction than all the wars in history combined. And we're already seeing what happens when we delay. This is why Russia is behaving the way it is. This is why the instability is increasing in, in, in the Middle East. There's no leadership to get off these non-renewables. We have the technological capability. I understand Elon Musk's companies have problems with actual implementation, but he's, his benefit is the, the research. But the real thing is, if you get nuclear fusion, if you get technology like that going, you're going to have a stabilizing effect. And that's, um, that's the end for me. Um, this is my contact info. I threw a lot at you, and, and I'm, I apologize about that, but it's a complicated issue, issue. But basically, in the near term, Russia's going to benefit if we push Iran too far, because it's going to drive up those prices, and it's going to make Russia turn off to doing deals with the United States. And so we need to get smarter, and we need to get nimbler on the diplomatic and economic front in dealing with these issues like Iran and in dealing with the Russians. Uh, the Russian-Iranian alliance is not a natural one. And there are things we can do in the medium and long term to really break that alliance apart, especially if we offer Russia greater incentives.